Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. If you would, take your Bibles and open them to Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1, the outline is online. If you'd like to follow along, you can find that at the live link at ravenswoodbaptist.org. Today we pick up in Colossians 1 and where we left off over the last week. And uh, if I could, uh, I think this, my, my heart and my thought this morning is if I had one message that I could preach to a church, it would be this one. If I just had one, it would be this text over and over again. In some ways, we enter into a very doctrinal passage this morning. It's extremely rich with Christ-centered doctrine. And in some ways, it, it's, it's heavy. Uh, but we're going to try to make what is uh, profound simple this morning. But I'm going to ask you to get your mind ready, okay? You're going to have to love the Lord your God this morning with all your mind. And you have to be ready to interact with what we hear. And see. You don't have to be a part of Ravenswood for long to know that I greatly enjoy the writings of C.S. Lewis. In Lewis's fourth book of the Chronicles of Narnia series, it's the book Prince Caspian, there's a special moment that takes place during the middle of the night. Lucy, one of the main characters, is awakened out of a a deep sleep, and Lewis describes it as she woke up with the feeling that the voice she liked best in the world had been calling her name. She was awake, staring at the Narnian sky, when another time she hears her name called. She knew it wasn't her brother Peter, so she gets up and she walks in the woods where the voice came from, and lo and behold, Fast-forwarding several pages, lo and behold, it was Aslan, Lewis's allegorical picture of Jesus. What joy it was in that moment for, for, her, for Lucy to see the huge lion. And Lucy says something here that is very powerful to what we interact with today in Colossians 1. Lucy says, Aslan, you're bigger. Now remember, this is the fourth book of the series. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Lucy's response is in a question, not because you are, not because you are actually bigger. Aslan's response is simple. He says, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. The more mature Lucy became, the bigger Aslan was to her. What we see Paul doing in this portion of Scripture in Colossians 1 is telling the Colossian Christians that as they grow in spiritual maturity, Jesus will become bigger and bigger. And so how does spiritual maturity happen? Well, listen very carefully. Spiritual maturity happens when we begin to see the supremacy of Jesus to all 
people, and things. Truth be told, our view of Jesus matters. And our Savior emphasized that. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, in Jesus' question there, he is driving the disciples to a proper view of himself. Paul, understanding that we need to see Jesus in all his glory. It begins by his description in Colossians 1 of the person of Christ. But let's be sure, Paul's not describing some cult figure. Paul's not describing some religious leader. What he does is he, in chapter 1, he breaks into a poetic style description of Christ. Now I don't have the time this morning, nor do I sense in you an overwhelming desire for me to explain to you the chiastic poetry in which Paul writes. You don't seem to be itching to hear about Jewish poetry. But many have noted that this portion was quite possibly a song in the early church, before Paul wrote it to these young Christians. And so when they hear it in Colossae, it might have been a song that they sang. And if that was the case, then Paul was simply rehearsing truths already known by these Christians. And let me just stop and say for just a moment, this is an emphasis of a song service of a church. If I can undo some, some, some things you might have heard in your life. The worship in song portion of church is vital to a service. When we sing God's truth, it is not mere preparation for the word, as if the, as if the song service is some side aspect of the service. No, the song service is the word declared in poetry and in song. I like what Sam Lyons said to me recently. He said, he said the world has tunes. Christians have songs. Christians have songs. And so the song service, by the way, church starts at 9 and 11. Why? Because everything that happens from 9 to 10 and 11 to 12 is the declaration of Jesus. Everything. And so when Paul writes these words to this group, he's reminding them of the supremacy of Christ. This is paramount to their faith. These Colossian people had been saved from pagan worship. And if they understood who Jesus is, then they would be less likely to ever have a desire to go back from where they came, and so it is with us. The more our hearts are drawn to see Christ as he is in all of his glory and all of his majesty and all of his supremacy, we will soon find our hearts can crave nothing greater than Jesus. You see, the poem in Colossians 1 we're going to read shows us very plainly that you and I have been created by Jesus and for Jesus. In the church, we exist under His Lordship. And in His life, suffering, death, and conquering of the grave and hell, we now have received of His new creation. And this is the call that we find here to see and to savor Jesus. You see, my friends, in a book about spiritual maturity. And Paul's explanation of Christ 
We need to understand that seeing Jesus rightly frees us from the bondage of sin and self. Seeing Jesus rightly helps us to come to find ultimate satisfaction in this life in Christ alone. And the seeing Christ rightly fuels a life that is dynamic and abundant in Him. When we are growing Christians, when we are growing Christians, as we've already heard, we grow in dependence on Christ. But truth is, you don't depend on someone you don't know and understand. You don't depend on someone who is just like you. For our hearts to grow in the likeness of Jesus, we must see Christ as He is and have everything in our life to be affected and ultimately turned upside down by Him. Or maybe you would say to be turned right side up. So let's take some time this morning and let's look at who Paul calls these, Corinthian, excuse me, these Colossian Christians to see. The first way he describes Jesus in our text is he describes him as the supreme one. The supreme one. Would you look with me at Colossians 1? I've waited to read it. I want you to see in verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. What Paul does here is Paul describes Jesus in verse 15 as the image of the invisible God. Now let's be clear. Jesus, being the image of the invisible God, is not who Jesus became. Okay? Now think with me. This is where you got to think through this. Jesus did not become the image. Jesus, this is the image of God, this is who Jesus already was and is. In eternity past, Christ existed before the incarnation. So that is not to say that Jesus existed bodily before the incarnation. It is to say that he who became flesh, the one you and I know as the human physical Jesus, was the pre-existent son who had been in eternal fellowship with the Father. And so it was appropriate for the second person of the Trinity, the pre-existent son, to become God in the flesh in the incarnation. John 1.14, and the Word was made flesh. Right, he had already described the Word as in the beginning was the Word. He was already there, pre-existent Christ. And the Word that was already there in eternal fellowship with the Father was made flesh and dwelt among us. He is the image of the invisible God. And the image is the Greek word that we get our English word, icon. Jesus is the image of God. He is the very likeness of the God who is not visible. 
Jesus makes him visible for us as an exact representation. And he had done so, and he has done so for all eternity. Hebrews chapter 1 describes him as being in the express image of his person. That Jesus Christ is the express icon image. He is a visible representation of exactly what the Father is. Paul goes on to say about Jesus that he is the firstborn of every creature. Now some have tried to use this passage to say that Jesus was a created being. But the firstborn actually has nothing to do with order of creation. The firstborn actually has to do with Christ's supreme rank and his status. In fact, in Exodus chapter 4, God referred to Israel as his firstborn. It was Israel's status. The Davidic Messiah, as we know as Jesus, referred to in Psalm 89, he is referred to as the firstborn. In Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is referred to as the first begotten. Simply put, the idea of Jesus being the firstborn is that Jesus is higher than every other creature in rank. He is higher than you. He is higher than me. When things began, the word already was. And so in, in virtue of Christ's eternal pre-existence, he now holds, or he has held, supreme rank. He's the firstborn. And the natural progression of the text, and that's why seeing it as the poetry that it is, it builds on each, each line. In verse 16 we find that not only is he the image of the invisible God, but he is the firstborn of every creature. And it goes on regarding every creature to tell us, for by him were all things created. Now that brings intrigue, I think, to the topic of creation. What people have asked, who actually created the world? Scripture indicates, actually, thank you for asking the question, that in creation, the whole of the Trinity was active. The Father initiated, and the Son was the agent bringing about the work through the Holy Spirit. And so the whole Trinity is active, but the Father, hear me, the Father and the Son desiring the, the uh, preeminence and the exaltation of Jesus give Christ glory for the work. Again, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 2 of chapter 1, by whom also... He made the worlds. The Father saw fit for the Son to make the worlds. The list that is given in verse 16. Notice if you will. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Now, a lot of people like to tease out that list and simply put, I'm not going to do that today as much as I'm just simply going to say, the point of the text is not to make a whole lot of distinguishing categories. It's to say this, Jesus is supreme over every category. Jesus is supreme over every category. What you see and don't see. The thrones and dominions and powers and principalities, that in earth, that in heaven. The Father has put Jesus over all of that and Christ is the supreme one. He concludes at the end of verse 16 and 17. To say that 
Christ created all things, and they were created for Him. All things were created by Him. By the way, second time Paul said that. And for Him. It's all for Jesus. Everything's for Jesus. Every tree is for Jesus. Every cloud is for Jesus. The sun today shining is for Jesus. It all declares the the glory and the, the wonder of Christ. But you too are for Christ. Reminds me of the four and twenty elders in Revelation 4. Do you remember them? Verse number 10 of chapter 4. The four and twenty elders in John's vision fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. See, this is Jesus. This is the one we saw last week who had made us to be the inheritance of the saints, who had, who had delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us to the kingdom of Christ and whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. This Jesus is the supreme one. He is overall. And everything exists for him. Secondly, Paul progresses to say not only is he the supreme one, he's the preeminent one. Not only is he over all, but he is first. (laughs) In case you needed it restated for you. He's the preeminent one, not just as the sovereign in creation, but he is sovereign over the new creation people, the church. Are you with me this morning? Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Here the church, like in Ephesians, is referred to as the body. The body. Christ is the head of that body. And as the body is controlled by the head, so the church is controlled by Christ. And it is to Jesus, hear me, that we, the church, belongs. Christ is our head. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, referring to the husband and the husband's leadership of the, of the wife, it simply goes on to say, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the Savior of the body, we, the church, belong to Christ. Because he is the very source of the life of the church. He is the beginning of the church. Go back there to verse 18. The head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning? Who is the beginning? It doesn't mean the beginning of all things, although that is true, we already saw. In this context, hear me, Christ is the beginning of the church. But not just the beginning as in he's the founder of it, although that is true. He is the beginning, meaning we only come into the church through Christ. And we exist as a church and as a body together for Christ. He's the beginning. Then he goes on to say, 
He's the beginning and he's the firstborn from the dead. Again, this means even more, even more. We've already seen that Christ is, uh, that Christ is, uh, he is the, the, the one who's uncreated. He has always been there. He's also the firstborn of, the, of, of every creature. That means he's above all creatures in status and in rank. But now we find out that in the context of the church, Christ is the beginning because he's the firstborn of the dead. Simply put, Christ's resurrection earned him the status of the head of the church. He was glorified by the Father and given the sovereign leadership and rulership over over the body because of the resurrection. But here's what I love about this. What I love about this is that all who come into the church come in through the beginning, through the one who who is the firstborn from the dead. But here's the good news. Paul, preaching to to, uh, King Agrippa in Acts 23, says that he should be the first that should rise from the dead. Hear me. And show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Here's what happens. When we come into the church... We come into through the beginning, we come into the firstborn from the dead, and we now enter into all those who are going to rise again one day. That's the resurrection. Well, it also means that He is now, Christ is now, because, hear me, as we saw last week, eternal life is not a future, eternal life is now. It also means that Christ is the author of life. He is the one who gives the new life of the Holy Spirit to all of God's people. So therefore, now here's where we get implication from from doctrine and where theology drives our understanding. The church, therefore, is the company of all those who share the risen life of Christ given to them by the author of life, Christ, who is now filled with new life by the Holy Spirit. And so, therefore, the Christians at Colossae knew that they were once dead in trespasses and sin. They heard it, chapter 2 and verse 13. They knew that they were separated from God, but they had now been made alive unto Christ. And so, the church is the people of God, the body of Christ, whose life began in Christ and continues in Christ. He is not just the cause of your new life, but Jesus is the continual source of your new life. Do you see this? I know it feels like maybe we're sitting in theology class this morning. But this is the context that Paul's saying to them. You want spiritual maturity, you're trying to leave the source that makes you mature. You're trying to go on to ordinances and philosophies and traditions and preferences and you want to fight about this and argue about that. Paul says, no, 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 no. Spiritual maturity happens in Christ because your salvation only could be possible by Christ. Here's the point. All right, bear with me. It gets a little bit, gets a little bit rough here. All right, you ready? You sure you're good? Apparently, it is very possible for a church to not hold to Christ as the head. Something else becomes the head. Something else becomes first. Some other idea, preference, tradition becomes first. Hear me. Jesus doesn't share his place with anything else. When you put something else before Christ, 
you begin the process of cutting yourself off, not from salvation, but from the essential nourishment that makes for proper growth. And so the passage implies that this will happen when Christ is not given the preeminent place that is rightfully His. See, for Christ to be preeminent, that means He must hold the first place. And there are no other firsts in a church. And let me just say, to our church, there are no firsts in this church. Can I just say, my family is not the first family. I'm not the first person. There's one first in this church, and it's only Jesus. It's only Jesus. That means that everything that happens is for Christ. And only He can give unity and only He can give growth. And when something else or someone else tries to be the preeminent one, welcome to a church that is going to be filled with constant factions and arguments and, and, and disagreements and there's going to be a lack of spiritual growth in the church. Truth is, everything that happens here is for someone, to someone, and through someone. So let me borrow what I found from somewhere else, and I don't know where I've gotten it, but it, the idea is not mine originally. You might think at times, I don't like things about Ravenswood. And that's okay. This church is not for you. You with me? Say, I don't like the music. That's okay. We don't sing for you. You okay? Music styles are not preeminent here. Say, I don't like the preaching. Jump in line. I don't either. But the preaching isn't for you. Listen very carefully. When we get into what we don't like, we just made what we don't like the preeminent thing. We just made it the preeminent thing. And churches split, never over Jesus but always over other things. So the preeminent thing is not what you like and what I like. The preeminent person and the only thing worthy of preeminence in this church is the sinless, sacrificial creator, savior of the world. It's only Christ. We can agree to disagree on a lot of things, but if we can agree on Jesus, we can gather and worship. There's one preeminent one, and we bow before him. Number three, and lastly, moving quickly, not only do we find the supreme one and the preeminent one, but we find the sacrificed one. Notice in verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Before I keep going, can you give me a little more, give, give me a little more um, warmer air in here if I can, please. Whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, forgive me. Paul takes us to the grand moment of this poem by taking us to the incarnation and the crucifixion. He has mentioned the resurrection already. He's talked about the resurrection being the facilitator of Christ's position over the church. Christ is such the preeminent one, though, that the Father was delighted. The Bible says it pleased the Father. It pleased the Father 
that in the incarnate Christ would permanently dwell all of the fullness of God. Now, I just want you to understand there's a whole lot of Christological depth to that statement. But Paul doesn't theologically explain it. It's simply stated. Because it's the divine miracle of the incarnate baby in the manger that God dwelled in him. Literally, as John 1 said, God's glory was seen in Jesus. The fullness of God was seen in Jesus. But not just in a baby, but in Christ's entire life. You could see God in the flesh. That wasn't the beginning of Jesus being the image of the invisible God. That was the manifestation for all humans to see. The movement here is that Jesus being fully God was that he was a worthy sacrifice by a life lived in full and total perfection. Now stay with that. In the context, it pleased the Father that in Christ all fullness dwells. And that matters because Jesus is now a worthy sacrifice because of his full and total perfection. That means that Christ's death on the cross was unjust from a human sense. But that also means that he willingly died as a lamb led to the slaughter, Isaiah 53, to pay for the sins of sinners so the justice of God could be satisfied. In him dwells all the fullness of God. But there are two key phrases here that tell us what Jesus did, and you shouldn't be surprised by them. They're gospel-oriented themes, and the first one is he made peace through the blood of his cross. The second one is that he reconciled, he will reconcile all things unto himself. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ ended the war between those that were at enmity and hostility with God. His creation had freely rebelled and sinned against the Creator. And that's why Paul's poem here is so powerful because it tells us that we were created. We were created by Jesus. We were created for Jesus. And yet Jesus had to come reconcile his creation to the Father. And that because Christ is a creator and in him dwells all fullness, only he is able to do the reconciling work. And he's going to reconcile people who are dead in sin. And sin really, it really plays out so powerfully because Sin can only do one thing. Ready? It can only kill. But Christ was killed on the cross, taking all the weight that sin could offer. In so doing, through His blood, He made peace possible. The only one who could make peace possible. The only one who could reconcile. And the idea of reconciliation is, this is me as a sinner and this is God as holy, and I'm running into him, I'm at war with God, but Jesus comes and reconcile literally means to bring to harmony. So in the cross of Christ, my war with God is ended, and I'm now at harmony with God by faith in the finished work. This is the blessed reality of peace and reconciliation. But you got to understand, i got to move quickly here. Reconciliation is God's work. It's not your work. 
See, reconciliation is only possible through the preeminent Christ, through the Creator, through the image of God in whom all fullness dwells. He's the only one worthy to be the reconciler. But you also got to remember, reconciliation is an already finished work. It's an already finished work. Here's the point. You don't have to do it. You don't have to reconcile. Yes, Paul does say, be reconciled to God, but you're only reconciled through Jesus. And so this reconciliation of this, it's only possible through an already finished work. Number three, reconciliation literally tells us that the gospel is good news. See, the scripture is not the story of good people seeking a great God, but scripture is a story of a good God seeking bad people. And so the fall shows us that man hides from God and does not want to come to God for help, but yet God is always seeking. So the good news is not that you ever found God. You didn't find God. No, God found you through Jesus. And that's good news. Number four, regarding reconciliation. Paul says here that reconciliation is for all things. So when man made the choice to sin, all of creation was affected. Romans chapter 8, 19 and 23, but I don't have time for that. But now the creation will too be redeemed and will be made new. And so what Paul's telling them here is you can be reconciled and all creation will be brought into a harmonious place. We know that happens in the, in the new kingdom to come. But here's the point of all this, my friends. Because I could, I could have taken several weeks and just theologically broken every aspect of this down, and I would love nothing more, I promise you. But the point is this. We have a supreme and sufficient Savior. And the supremacy, I want you to, here's a couple just quick applications. The supremacy of Christ means there is no greater message the church has to preach. The church has no greater message to preach. That's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. The Lord. We don't have a political agenda here at Ravenswood. I'm not here to discuss what preferences I might have. And I'm not even here to preach a specific doctrine that I like the most. Simply put, stop asking your church to be what Jesus never meant it to be. If Christ is supreme, there's no greater message. There's no greater cause. There's no greater motive. There's no greater one than that of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, the supremacy of Christ means there is no greater thought, meditation, or study than that of Jesus Christ. I know the time is getting away here, but let me just read you a quote, a wonderful quote from John Owen, Puritan writer. He wrote in his book, The Glory of Christ. Owen says this, follow along on the screen if you like. The revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, more glorious, more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation and the just comprehension of it, if attainable, can contain or afford. Without this knowledge, the mind of man, however priding itself in other inventions and discoveries, is wrapped up in darkness and confusion. 
This, therefore, deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. For if our future blessedness shall consist in living where He is and beholding of His glory, what better preparation can there be for, be for it than a constant previous contemplation of that glory as revealed in the gospel, that by a view of it we may be gradually transformed into the same glory? What Owen is saying here is if we're going to where he is and we're going to behold him forever, then if we are going to become like him, then we better, we better revel in the gospel. We better view him. We better think about him. We better meditate on him. And we better study all that Jesus is. And there is no greater thought, meditation, or study. Pick what your hobby is. Pick what your pet thing is. If you give it more time than Jesus, it's an idol. But Christ is the supreme one. Number three, the supremacy of Christ underscores, highlights, and makes bold the only Jesus gospel. If Christ is supreme, then the gospel that says Jesus plus nothing, that gospel, That gospel is what we need for salvation and for spiritual formation. My friends, look on, meditate on, think on, consume yourself with the Supreme One, the preeminent One, the sacrificed One. He is enough because He is everything. I don't mean he's literally everything. I mean he is our everything. And your life exists because of him and for him. Your calling is for Christ. Let me just conclude and just say this. At the end of that passage, we find that he is reconciling all things unto himself. You know what what Paul's saying there? Do you know who he is? Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. And so when all things are reconciled, it doesn't mean that every person is going to be saved. Here's what it's saying. It's saying that every person, thing, all things in heaven and earth will confess He is Lord. And the unbeliever will do it in judgment. And the believer does it in salvation. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you've never come to Christ, oh my friend, come to the Supreme One. Come to the Glorious One. He is everything. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the Gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.